Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Exodus chapter 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, around 4,000 years ago, there lived a man named Abram, who later became known by the more common name of Abraham. He lived in an area known today as modern-day Iraq. Abram's father, Terah, was an idolatrous heathen that is supposed to have had perhaps as many as Twelve deities that he worshipped. That's the family, the home that Abram was raised in. And one day, God spoke to Abram and challenged him to follow him, to follow the Lord, to move out of that land of Ur the Chaldees. And follow him to a place where God would designate a land that would forever be given to the children of Abraham. And Abraham obeyed him. The Bible tells us he believed God and his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham had the child of promise. We remember that. Isaac. Isaac had... Twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob proved in his life to be a a bit of a manipulator. But Esau was an out-and-out 
profane person. The word profane being very specifically designated in Scripture. And the word profane, just to make sure we understand what kind of person Esau was, means having no interest whatsoever in spiritual things. No reverence at all for sacred matters. No religion whatsoever. He lived for his own appetites. He never acknowledged God. He never showed any interest in pleasing God. He was totally irreverent. You know any people who are profane? Esau's profane, irreverent, self-indulging lifestyle eventually led him to the point of trading his birthright for just a bowl of stew. And that's the point where the Bible says that Esau was a profane person. Later on, he was tricked out of his birthright. And he could not retrieve his birthright, though he sought it bitterly with tears. So Esau goes down as a profane, irreverent, self-indulgent person. Esau's grandson was Amalek. And it was the Amalekites named after Amalek that ambushed the children of Israel. Now let's get a time frame on this so you understand what's happening. Israel has been delivered from Egyptian bondage. And they are just fresh out of Egypt. They are just fresh across the Red Sea, walking across on dry land as God rolled the waters back, turning around and, and watching the army of Pharaoh drowned in the waters. Israel is just fresh in the desert place with whatever they could carry. They are nothing but generations and generations of slaves. They're not skilled beyond whatever they were forced to do as slaves, making mud bricks and building things. They're certainly not skilled as military people. They're in the desert place. They didn't bring a lot of food. And the challenge is, here we are, how are we going to survive? So God proves himself. And even in the chapter that I'm reading from in this story, in the beginning of the chapter, God instructs Moses, don't let them worry about the water. I'll provide the water. Strike the rock. And from the rock came forth streams and rivers of water. En enough for every man, every woman, every woman, every child, the livestock. God provided water in the wilderness. Just, just previous to that. They were wondering what they were going to eat. And God gave them manna. And then they complained about manna and said, we want some meat. So God gave them quail. So now they had two meals to choose from. In the morning, they ate manna and, quail, and uh, they ate quail at night. And water comes out of a rock. God is already proving to the children of Israel, though you're in the wilderness, I'll take care of you. 
And so they've had the manna, they've had the quail, they've had the water, and following immediately on the heels of this incident of pulling the water from the rock, they are ambushed by the Amalekites. And we're just introduced now to this group of of ruthless marauders in the desert. And that's the reason I went from Abraham to Isaac to Esau to Amalek, to let you see the line where Amalek came from. And they were doing pretty good through Abraham with his conversion experience, his found faith in God, and and Isaac. And, And then all of a sudden, Esau gets off track somewhere. And Esau's grandson becomes the leader of these Amalekite people. That God is not happy at all with what the Amalekites are doing. They are harassing and endangering his people in the desert place. And when it, it, it says that, the, when, I'm, when I'm telling you they ambushed them, Moses refers back to this, if we would go over to the book of Deuteronomy, 25th chapter, and he, he gives us a little summary of what had happened at this point. He says, do you remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. So there we are, fresh out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Anybody else you remember in this little story today that did not fear God? Having a profane father or a profane grandfather does not always guarantee the rest of the family line is going to be profane. But I can tell you this. When you see a long line of godless people in the family tree, you know that the lack of godly teaching and godly examples in the older generations have contributed to the godlessness of that family. There has been influence. They have helped shape godless generations to come. The one thing that I want to pull from this point before I move on, you can help break godless intergenerational patterns. I did not say generational curses. We hear a lot of that bandied about, in, especially in Pentecostal circles, where we seem to, to house a lot of strange teachers and teachings, generational curses. I, I do not believe, like a lot of people believe, that you are living under some generational curse where You have to go through some program to break that curse. But I do believe, without any shadow of a doubt, we are living living under and witnessing many times godless intergenerational patterns that happen. So, see, you're not cursed because of what your grandfather did, except for the fact that we're all under a curse because of what Grandpa Adam did. And Grandma Eve. But whenever you get sin started in the family, 
it has the potential, because this is the way sin is. Sin is like yeast. Sin spreads. It, gets, it takes root. It invades. When you get sin started in the family, have you ever noticed how it just keeps going on in the family? Without a spiritual intervention, without somebody waking up and seeing the light and coming to Christ, we just tend, horse thieves tend to breed horse thieves. You ever notice how drug addicts tend to open the door for drug addicts in their children? Alcoholics tend to open the door and introduce their children to the world of alcoholism. Have you ever noticed that? Does it bother you? I don't know how many of you here today may have wrestled with sin in your life because of something your parents introduced you to. I hope there's not many of you here that are like that. But the reality of it is that that happens quite often in our world today. The influences of mom and dad who were influenced by their parents, who were influenced by their parents, and a long line of people who are living in sin and almost believing, doesn't everybody, isn't this normal? I wonder, beyond just the influences that maybe you have had in your life, I wonder if it matters to you the influences that you are setting up for your children. We tend to compartmentalize our lives, don't we? We tend to behave as though whatever I do affects me but you don't think much about how much it affects anybody else. Because if you thought about how your actions affect your family and your children and your son and your daughter, and you came to the sickening realization that your child might spend eternity in hell... Because you were not adult enough, you were not man enough, you were not woman enough to walk the life of Jesus Christ before them because you wanted to do what you wanted to do. God help us if we don't care about promulgating and promoting our sinful lifestyles and passing them on. To our children. I think any healthy parent hates to see their child afflicted with anything. I think any reasonable, rational, healthy parent regrets that if they brought a cold or a flu bug home and passed it on to their child, they feel badly. I Gave this to my child. And that's just small potatoes. Do you care about the sin you're passing on to your children? What kind of influence you're having? And don't even, don't even begin to think that my children don't know 
Because I'll tell you who does know, and it's hell. And hell's going to take advantage of the fact that you have opened a door in your life, in your family, and your home, and hell's going to do everything it can to put the roots down and make sure that somehow, some way, that gets to your family line. Because you've got bigger things going on here than just what you're under control of. You can help break that intergenerational influence that seems to be going on. I want to continue with my story. The Israelites reminding their own business, making their way through the wilderness on the way to this land that God had promised to Father Abraham. Coming out of Egyptian bondage, God tells Moses, we're going to lead you over to the promised land. And so here they are just going about their business, going through the wilderness, relying on God, trying to get to the land that had been promised to Abraham and his people. These 400 years of of nothing but slavery, these people that had no other special skills at all. They're not warriors. They were not experienced in military. Slaves by trade for generations suddenly have this surprise attack on the rear ranks from the ruthless Amalekites. And it made for this extremely perilous and dangerous situation for the vulnerable, unskilled, untrained, unorganized children of Israel. And somehow, under this attack, Moses and and the children of Israel managed to survive until nightfall, at which time the battle would stop. And there, in the dark and the peace of the night, Moses calls on a young man, and this is the first time we learn of a young man named Joshua. And he calls on this young man because Moses has noticed something in Joshua that catches his eye. Joshua is not a great military leader, but Moses sees something that he trusts him. And he says to Joshua, here's the plan. You pull together hand-picked men that you think you can make an army out of. And you've got one night to get your army together. Because tomorrow, I want you to go out there with your army. No weapons. No training. No strategies. I want you to take your men and go out there. And I want you to face the Amalekites. And I am going to go up on the hill and pray for you. Now, I don't know how he sold that to Joshua. I would have been, if I, Joshua, I said, well, how about let's flip a coin? I go to the hill and pray. You go fight them. But you know what made Joshua great? He didn't flip a coin. He didn't argue. He understood authority. He understood leadership. And without any hesitation, he did exactly what Moses told him to do. That's what made Joshua great. 
Daybreak comes, and Joshua has his army. Moses makes his way up to the hill. And as Joshua goes to battle, Moses begins to pray. He prays like this. Now, that should not be strange at a Pentecostal church, but Moses wasn't Pentecostal. He's praying. He's interceding. And prayer is working. And so Moses says, this is wonderful. We're winning. Can you imagine it? These skilled, ruthless, tricky Amalekites. They just roll their army over anybody. And this, this band of slaves goes out, goes out there unprepared and whips them. And so Moses is pleased, and he just takes a rest. And all of a sudden, they start losing. He says, I better pray again. So he puts his hands up and begins to pray, and they start winning. I don't know how many times it took for Moses to figure out, but they're winning, they're losing, they're winning, they're losing, they're winning, they're losing. He, he's like, Aaron and her, hey, he said, hey, watch this. <laughs> he said, we got a problem, guys. The blood's running out of my hands. I don't know how long this battle takes, but I can't hold my hands up all day. So they get him a rock, and they set him on the rock. And here's the part of the story that nobody ever talks about. From then on, Aaron and her hold his hands up. Now, what about their hands? I mean, it's hard enough to hold your own hands up when you've got to hold somebody else's hands up. I imagine Aaron and her got tired, don't you? Isn't the ministry of Aaron and her also valuable like the ministry of Moses? We've got people who pray, and we've got people who support people who pray. And sometimes people who pray need people who will pray for them while they pray. Because we need people who are supporters in everything that we do. So they managed to keep his hands up. And Aaron and her had some grit. They had some determination. I don't know how they managed, but somehow they managed to hold his hands up. Until the sun set. And they defeated the Amalekites. Now the battle is fought on two fronts. You got Moses on the hill. And you got Joshua in the valley. And here's how this applies. First of all to your personal life. In your personal life. How many of you have ever wanted. God to come and just fight your battles for you. And, you know, once in a while he's done that, hasn't he? I, I won't argue with that. You were too tired. You were too weak. There was nothing left. And God came and fought the battle. There's even incidents in the Bible where God just miraculously won the battle for them. But there are times when there are two phases of this. And this is an example of that. Where... 
you need God's help in this battle, but God wants you to have some skin in the game. Because you are able. Because you are healthy. And the only reason you wouldn't is because you are lazy, or reluctant, or rebellious. And in those cases, in those incidents, God wants you to be a part of this plan of getting the victory over the Amalekites. In other words, instead of just praying for God to take care of the situation, he says, I'll be on the hill, but I want you in the battlefield. And sometimes fighting your battles is going to take some strenuous effort on your part because God wants you involved in this. So you can't be lazy and get all the victories that are due you. You have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and get in the battle. Now, here's the way it applies to the church. In your life, it's you and God. Each person doing their part. But in the church, you understand that in the body of Christ, we need each person here doing their part. I realize there's some of you that don't have the strength don't have the youth and the vitality and the energy. Some of you, for other reasons, don't have, just don't have the time to do the physical things in this church that some of the other people have to be able to do that. But do you have the opportunity to pray and support? And so it takes everybody doing something, those of you who do have the strength who do have the skill, who do have the times. We need boots on the ground. We need people involved. But for those who can't, I'll be glad to have you sitting on the hill with your hands in the air. I'll count it a privilege for you to be up there, touching God and praying, because that's not easy either. Pray. Either take up a sword and go to battle or get on the hill and pray. One option that is not on the table is doing nothing. It takes everybody doing something. And if you've got a problem that you cannot physically get in and do the work of the church, and you've got a problem where for some reason you cannot pray at great lengths, give money. Anything. I'll take help anyway. You can help. Point number three. Everybody has their Amalekites. You have Amalekites in your life. And you know what? You're going to have Amalekites until the day you die. Get used to it. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalek from under heaven. But he didn't do it that day. At some future point in time. But until that future point in time, there's going to be many battles 
against the Amalekites. God gave them the victory that day against the Amalekites. But winning one victory does not entitle you to retire. The principle that we are learning from this story is victory is a way of life. It's not a one-time event in your life. Victory is a, a series of battles in your life that you continue with God on the hill and you in the battlefield for God to bring you victory every time you face the Amalekites. So if you're looking for that one-time event in your life where God just comes down and gives you the victory and from then on you don't have any problem, that doesn't always happen for people. I'm not saying it can't, but I'm saying it doesn't always happen for people. For some of you, you're going to face the Amalekites every day that you live. And every day it's going to be the same situation. God's on the hill. You're in the battlefield, and God will win that for you if you trust in him. The only reason he will not win, the only reason you will not get the victory, if you just don't fight. You just lay down the weapons, you just quit, and you go on. And the failure is all your fault. It's not God's. But other than that, you stay in the battle, and God stays on the hill, you're going to win. And you're going to win it today, and you're going to win it tomorrow, and you're going to win it the next day. And that's what victory is. It's winning every battle that you face every day. And if you won one, I promise you, you can win the next one. I promise you it's the same foe and it's the same backer and the same sponsor, God. And I promise you, one victory in battle guarantees you every victory if you want it. Taking away all excuses from people who are not winning their battles. There's no reason not to win your battles. You're just giving up. First of all, if you don't get rid of the Amalekites, it could literally cost you everything. Is that alarming? Does that get your attention? If you don't get rid of the Amalekites, you don't want to pay that price. Don't you pass that off. Let the Holy Spirit burn that into your mind today. You see, Israel fought the Amalekites. However, it came to the point where Israel demanded a king. Their first official king was Saul. And Samuel came to Saul and said, The Lord has given you instruction to go and fight the Amalekites. There they are again. This far away from Joshua and Moses to King Saul, he's going to go fight the Amalekites because the Amalekites were just kind of a permanent fixture for Israel to fight. But they didn't have to lose. And God's promise is still good. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to wipe um, the name of Amalek from everybody's memory. God wanted to do that. So... Samuel comes to Saul and says, here's God's plan. You go in there and you fight the Amalekites. And incidentally, this is the story that so many skeptics of Christianity hate because they think that any God that would sanction the total slaughter of a people, the Amalekites, that's always a big, that's always a big story 
with the atheists, the agnostics, the, uh, the skeptics. They say, I don't want to serve a God who approves of that kind of uh, ruthless slaughter of men, women, children, babies. And God approves of that. And they can't process that. Well, they don't realize the problem Amalek had as a godless, ruthless man himself because of the problem that his dad had, because of the problem that his dad, Esau, had. And you got this, this profane line of people that now have formed a band and they're going around and they're harming people and they are themselves ruthlessly slaughtering people. And God said, I'm not going to allow that to happen. They themselves will be ruthlessly slaughtered because of what they are doing, because of the profane people they are. And I'm going to stop it. Once and for all, Samuel says to Saul, go in there. Kill every man, kill every woman, kill every baby, kill everything. And you say, babies? Kill babies? You know, there's, there is an eternity. There's an afterlife that balances everything. The death of a child here on earth, the death of anybody here on earth, is not the worst thing that can happen. Especially whenever you have a heaven, you have eternal life, you have a place where God takes whoever's died here, and if they are innocent, if they are children, if they are babies, he can give them uh, eternal life, which is far better than anything they had down here, especially far better than living in the company of a ruthless band of Amalekites that is going to turn them into murderers and thieves and rapists. So you see, people get this all out of balance. Like the, the, the death of some, it's, it's unforgivable. It's the worst thing that ever, no, the worst thing that ever could happen is eternal punishment. That's the worst thing. Kill them all. Kill the animals. Not a living thing. Don't take anything. We don't want, we don't want even a, a piece of Amalek and the Amalekites. Nothing left. Destroy it and leave it. It's over. So Saul goes to battle. And he saves the king and gives him a reprieve, King Agag. And he spares the cattle and the sheep and he brings them back to camp. And Samuel walks down to see what's going on and he notices all this livestock and he said, what means the bleeding of the sheep in my ear? I like, I like that way, what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep in my ear. You know, it's like, hey, what's that noise? And King Saul says, well, I I thought God would like a sacrifice. Samuel said, God didn't say he wanted a sacrifice. This is the story from which we get uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. We've condensed that down. Obedience is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. He did not obey. And he thought giving a sacrifice to God would would excuse him for his actions of sparing the king, of sparing the livestock. Here's a king that doesn't even know how to follow instructions. And the word of the Lord comes upon the prophet Samuel and says, God says, because you have not honored me, you have disrespected me, you don't know how to obey that your kingdom is taken from you. It's the end for you. If you can't follow simple instructions, you're of no value to me whatsoever. You're done. Count the days down. You're finished. If you don't destroy the Amalekites, 
it can cost you everything. And the Amalekites are those things in your life that you know, that you know, that you know if you stood before God today and God wanted to talk to you about those things in your life, you would stand there shamefaced before him. There is no excuse you can offer God where God's going to say, well, I can understand that, sure. You know this doesn't please God. It's the Amalekites in your life. If you don't get rid of this, you don't want to pay the price. The fourth and final point. Moses discovers the Nisi. God speaks to him and says, take this down, Moses. Make an internal record, memorial of this. I will wipe the name of Amalek from the face of the earth. Nobody will remember it. And number two, make sure Joshua hears this. Because if Joshua hears it, he will pass it on to the next person who will pass it on to the next person. Saul knew. Samuel knew. They knew they could not indulge the Amalekites. They knew that. And when God would finally say it's time that they be fully eradicated, somebody's going to have to step up to the plate and do that. And Moses slips off to himself somewhere because in the midst of all this, Moses has this phenomenal revelation of God. He understands God to be the power that speaks out of the burning bush and commissions him to go and get his people out of bondage. He understands God to be that great and mighty force on Mount Sinai where he spends those 40 days with him and writes the law on the tablets and speaks to him in thundering tones. He understands God to be the one that can split the sea and walk the people on dry land from the breath of his nostrils. He understands God to be the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and the one who brings manna up from the ground and flies the quail in for supper. He understands God to be the one who defeats the Amalekites. But at this point of defeating the Amalekites, Moses has this, 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 this revelation in his life. Because Moses knows that when the Amalekites came to them, they were carrying this banner. And he remembers back in Egypt that Egypt had a banner. And he remembers every foe that Egypt ever faced or had the potential of facing had a banner. And now that he's got an army, Moses said, we need a banner. Everybody's got a banner. What's a banner? First of all, the banner is a rallying point. Secondly, the banner is an inspiration point. It tells you who you're fighting this battle for. The banner is a testimony. Because when you're flying your banner, everybody knows who you are and what you stand for. And Moses said, everybody's got a banner. And he went and built himself an altar. And he said, I'm going to call this altar Jehovah Nisi. Because it suddenly dawned on him, I may not have a piece of cloth or a piece of leather or an emblem to fly on a flag, but he said, for Israel, we have something special. The Lord is our banner. Wherever we go, the Lord is there. He will give us the victory. If he can catch those sneaky Amalekites coming on the the back uh, uh, of, uh, of our group, he said, God can take care of us. The Lord is our banner. I wonder. Have you made the personal discovery that the Lord is your banner? Have you come to understand Jehovah Nisi in your life? 
That word banner, Nisi, it's the same word that is used whenever the children of Israel were in danger from the poisonous snakes. And they lifted up the bronze serpent and put it on a pole. That was a Nisi. That was a banner. It was the same word used in Psalms 64 when the psalmist said, You have given a banner, a Nisi, to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. It's the same word used in Isaiah as he looked down in the future and he saw the coming Messiah. And the prophet said, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a Nisi, as a banner to his people. Jesus Christ, our banner. I wonder, have you figured out God is your banner? Have you figured out that He is your rallying point? Have you figured out that to display God in your life is to bear testimony to I don't need what you're offering me. I've got my banner. I've got my God. I've got my victory source. I've got everything I need. But if you're not flying your banner, you're not testifying of God. The world needs to know you're trusting in God. You may need to make that clear. You need to make that clear to your family. That should not be some guessing game. We're not needing more undercover Christians. We're needing Christians who will fly their banner for God and say, I'm trusting in God. You can trust in whatever you want to trust in in this world. The Lord, Jehovah Nisi, He is my banner. He's all I need. Having a banner means we join ourselves to God in battle. And we vow to do our part. So God will in turn do his part. It means, number two, we will bear that testimony before this world. And you may have to verbally fly your banner wherever you go. I'm not recommending you go home and make yourself a banner and carry it with you everywhere. It's a little ostentatious. But I do recommend that you verbally fly your banner So people know who you are and what you stand for. I believe that you need to commit yourself before this world to let everybody know right off the bat, I don't do that. I don't believe in that. Don't even ask me. Don't tempt me because the Lord is my banner. Get it out there so people know. And I think in the final point, three reasons why people struggle making God their nisi. Number one, I do not believe that everybody has had that personal experience with God. They've heard about it. They might believe in theory that God is their victory and God is their banner. But for Moses, it was firsthand information. He saw the hand of God in his life. And I'm not sure that everybody has actually seen the hand of God in their life. You've got to have that personal revelation about what God can do for you and has done for you. The second reason people refuse to fly that banner and call God their banner is they have maybe had their personal moments, but they do not give God the glory. I've seen this too often. People find themselves in a crisis and they cry out to God. Then when God gives them the victory, they go their separate way, ignoring God just like they did before the crisis. They don't adopt God as the banner for their life. They say, well, it worked out all right anyway, God. Thanks, but no thanks. It was God that gave you that. And they fail to give God the glory. And the number three reason is they fail to understand 
that the battles against the Amalekites is going to be a lifelong commitment. The battle you faced yesterday, it's done. It's over. God gave you the battle and the strength to win that battle, but it's history. And yesterday's victory doesn't mean you're not going to face the Amalekites again. It just means that the same God who gave you the first time is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he'll give you the victory today and he'll give you the victory tomorrow. What banner are you marching under? Have you made that declaration in your life? If you're endeavoring to march under the banner of Jehovah Nisi, you cannot dishonor his kingdom. Hold his banner high and hold it in honor. Bow your heads.